Okay. Now we can pin this. Oh, you know what I gotta do is promote the, the LinkedIn account one more time to get us over 100. Pin. Oh, yeah, pin it up first. Haha, <laughs> did you get 100 yesterday? 80 something. Come on, only 20 more. Come on, let's do it. Pin it up. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Whoever has LinkedIn in the audience, please go onto the LinkedIn page and. Is it follow? Okay, follow it. I don't know. I'm gonna find out right now what, what the. What it is. Here's. Was, what is it about LinkedIn? Show? Yeah, because uh, Tyler wants to pin the live stream on LinkedIn, but in order to do that, he needs to have at least um, 100 followers on that Tech News Around the World page. So we have been pinning it oh, up so I, that, you know, oh, yeah, whoever I, has a LinkedIn there. profile, just go follow it. Okay, now I've got it. We, right. want, we want better people here, so we want professional people here, so we have to put on LinkedIn because it's... <laughs> Not exactly, but yeah. So... Here, there's the LinkedIn page for Tech News Around the World, and it's at 84 followers. And if we get it to 100, which no doubt we will in the next one minute, um, then we can start live streaming Tech News there. Yeah. Let's do it. Come on. Just like, just like we do at Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. But there's a whole bunch of, like, like half-jokingly, yeah, there's a whole bunch of people who live in LinkedIn who are smart folks who could then be exposed to this crazy uh, potluck of uh, ideas that we have here every day. And that would be fun. And um, so we'll, uh, we ask you to take two seconds and click the link at the top of the room. And it's it, the technical term in LinkedIn is follow. You follow tech news around the world. And um, you are at 94 now. There we go. So we'll, we'll hit 100 here in a minute. So thank you to everybody for helping. Come on, we need six more, six more to go. Okay. And I'm, actually, Tyler, I'm one of those folks who really is um, mostly using LinkedIn. Right, a lot Especially every, every single day. I, it's amazing how LinkedIn uh, transformed, really, when it came to Europe about six years ago, no, eight, nine years ago. And the Europeans and the rest of the world were like, this is great, let's do this. And now they've had this massive resurgence. So um, I myself don't really use LinkedIn, as it says on my LinkedIn profile in all caps. The first thing it says is, I do not use LinkedIn. <laughs> do not message me or whatever. I, personally, I don't use it. But um, I, and I, I put my uh, yeah, alternatives. Twitter is my best thing for folks who are wondering. And I don't use Clubhouse DMs, as many of you now know. Um, so apologies to anyone who ever sent me back channels in Clubhouse uh, because I really very rarely check those. I mean, like once a month. Um, and I feel bad that it's because I'm using Club Deck and Club Deck isn't the Clubhouse app. It's a different app. So I think we're all in order now. Anyone else have any kind of a clerical details to touch on before we get started? Yeah, I'd, I'd maybe tell her I'd make a recommendation on the link above, guys. Yep. If you click it and you're getting a login page um, and you don't want to log in, you could just open up the app and just put in tech news around the world. Uh, that's what I did. I went into link. I didn't want to go do login stuff. It took too long, but I just had the app open. So I opened it up and looked up tech news around the world and, and follow there. So you guys can um, you go, go a lot faster through the app if you are having trouble with the link. I did the did same. The same yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> just now. 
So you go open the LinkedIn app and search for tech news. Is, uh, that's all you had to search for was the word tech news? Uh, well, you I have put, tech I news around the one followers okay. now. Triple one followers. Okay. I had to put news the right We got it. Though. Okay, yeah. good. Hopefully, now I have to up. The whole process is I have to apply for live streaming and they have yeah. to approve you because they don't want just anyone live streaming. And actually, you know what it really is? You know, it's kind of funny. It says uh, in the application to live stream on LinkedIn, it says uh, people from China are not allowed. <laughs> well, I mean, that was because LinkedIn was in China until a few weeks, a week ago, two weeks ago. LinkedIn just left China. But yeah. they clearly forgot to remove that part because it's not relevant anymore. But I guess that... it's too dangerous for them too because they need to do live moderation if they want to. Have I think Microsoft wants some contracts. With right. USA wait, government wait. the Jedi stuff. <laughs> well, but there's, it's also because live people are able to say whatever they want during a live stream, and China uh, needs to make sure everybody is held accountable during live streams. Cami, it sounds like you're. I'm making some kind of music over there. So I'm going to mute your mic. Hold on. And then the all the live streams in China require people to be registered, so to speak, with their facial recognition so that they know who you are when you're live streaming. So if you say something they don't like, they can come have a little talk with you, maybe a little walk in the park, maybe have a nice little ice cream with you. And I hear tea is quite popular. Tea, well, that's the Russian variation, but yeah. So, uh, the oh, we got a whole bunch of friends in the audience Jay and Nena and Messi and and Tyler. I have to pin the tweet, I mean, the links. Oh, yes, PTL. gonna be working. Uh, okay, yep. so here we go. I'm ready. If everyone's ready, where's ready. the horn? Here we go. We're only six minutes late. So here we go. The first story of today, Happy Tuesday, November 16th, is that Twitter makes its version 2 API. And there's, I can hear the groans of thousands of developers, uh, like our friend Carl, who DM'd me um, ten or eight hours ago when this story was breaking. Because he was trying to remind me in my DMs, although I've very clearly remember um just you know when twitter itself launched back in 2006 and 7 way back when way back in the old days of the internet folks um when you didn't ask for permission to build apis you just scraped the hell out of everything in sight <laughs> I, I i've i've missed you chris <laughs> so the yeah Go ahead. Oh, you know the feeling. So the what happened was Twitter made it possible for people to suck in the tweets. They called it the fire hose was the term at, at Twitter. And because it was a fire hose of tweets, it was just, you know, millions of tweets. And people made apps. Lots of apps, lots and lots of apps. I mean, like a hundred or more than a hundred apps around Twitter. It was what boosted a lot of Twitter's valuation. I mean, it did the darling of Silicon Valley for, for a while. It was because all those developers put in so much development effort, the just beautiful visualizations, everything. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, a lot of the, 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 the tools that developers made were far superior than, than to Twitter's native 
apps. And because people were spending more time on it than Twitter was spending on time. People were making businesses. It was a small team then. It was a very small team, yeah. And and that was a clever way to do it, was Twitter like, hey, we're a really small team. Uh, we don't need to be a product. We can let the rest of the world build the product, just you know, have APIs. And they even... But then. It, but then. <laughs> oh, but, oh, but then. Well, the... Yeah, for some reason, they made a decision. Uh, you know what? That's great. You guys have been spending, I don't know, a couple of years of your life and raising money and, you know, maybe invested your own life savings into building that up. But we're, we're just going to shut that down now. It's okay. They all went on to make bots for Twitter. And so it never quite stopped. It just, <laughs> it was paying them. Well, let's, let's hope. But I had a few friends, personal friends who got quite hurt by that. They shafted so many on that one. Yeah, and the things were never, and it caused it took quite a long time for. I mean, th this is, I believe, in part why uh, Twitter has kind of peaked, you know, in terms of growth at around you know three hundred million monthly active users, while Facebook's gone on to three point five billion. In some they sense, they have to come up with new features. Their user, the, the developers would do it for them with stuff. If they had just kept that thing going with stuff, they would have right. still had like a cavalcade of everything. They had to freeze their feature set because they're having trouble just even managing the part that they do have. Yeah, I think it was because I, I would love to know the real backstory, and I'm confident we will get the real backstory because I have friends there um, who can tell us the real backstory. But at that time, when they froze the original API, version V1 API, uh, they were having a hard time keeping the site up because they were growing really fast because they had all of these apps. So they were uh, kind of a victim of their own success might be one explanation was there were so many apps out there. They got all this buzz. Everything was booming. They couldn't keep the site up because back then in 2006, it was hard to keep up a site that was growing that fast, unlike today where you've got unlimited AWS capacity. And so, um, so they shut down the APIs. And now they're, that's where I, I wanted to give you all that background and historical context because the headline today says Twitter makes its version two API. And now you know why there's thousands of developers groaning all over the world when they read that headline because they got burned. And every, even people who didn't build apps on Twitter remember what happened. And um, the, Twitter's going to have to go a long way to convince people that uh, you know, that won't be a repeat scenario because uh, a lot of people are gun shy to, you know, get burned twice. So, well, what you said, what you said is what they should, if that's what happened, Tyler, I completely get it. I mean, if you're, I remember back in 2005, what was it? 2005, uh, um, way back then, dude, um, you had to build your own stuff. You put it on your own servers. Usually you might've not even just, you know, you don't click a few buttons. You have to ha actually have physically have the stuff. If they physically had the stuff that they were running the system on, and they put some APIs and it just like went haywire and everything is crashing. They they, they could have just panicked and, and said, we got to stop the APIs so that we can stabilize this thing so the whole thing doesn't collapse itself. If that happens, I think other developers will, will, will understand that they were young and new and, and uh, they did their best. And, and um, that that's understandable because changing an API or just releasing it, like you get this every time you're about to release code or release an API, you literally want to throw up because you know you have no idea what's going to come at you. You're like, okay, here comes some stuff, right? Something's going to break no matter how much you did in the bug fixing. So if, if that happened, I think developers would, would empathize with them. So let's check out the article just for kicks. Um, 
This is the Verge version. It says the second version of its AP application programming interface, that's the API, application programming interface, is ready to come out of early access and become the default for developers. When Twitter announced, announced that it was going to do this back in August of 2020, it seemed like a chance to rebuild not only the infrastructure on which developers build their apps and bots, but Twitter's relationship with the people using its platform as well. Are there more uh, bots using Twitter than like people at this point? I, think, I don't think it doesn't seem like it for for me lately. I think they've actually got the bots under under control for the most part. Hmm. Uh, it says in a press release, Twitter says it's removing restrictions from its developer policy on how you build with Twitter's core features and limited the number of users you can support through your app. Now, as I read that, it sounds to me. Like they want to start growing again. Like, oh, uh, let you know, growth strategy wise. Um, what what would if you were Twitter? What would you do if you wanted to inspire growth? You might go back to that moment when you were booming. You know, back in two thousand five, six, seven, or six, seven, eight, and uh, when developers were making hundreds of apps. Because you, oh, and it, it even mentions a lot of these apps in this, in this paragraph. It says, um, this could mean a real impact on how Twitter's users interact with the service as it gives developers more freedom to build third-party Twitter clients like TweetBot, Twitterific, and Phoenix, which were very popular the first time around. While there are unofficial Twitter apps available, the company's relationship with the developers behind those apps has been mixed. Limits on how many users could use a third-party app as well as missing features meant that the de facto way to access Twitter has been using its official app. This is in contrast to some other social platforms like Reddit, where many users recommend apps made by indie developers like Apollo or Narwhal over the official one. It says when My Twitter understanding is one of the reasons they, they throttled that um, was because it was because you know, a lot, a lot of their internal valuation numbers are based around how many people are accessing the site and user metrics. Apparently, when, when they were accessing through the APIs, they couldn't tell whether those were algorithmic or whether those were like, you know, like uh, people that were the people that were viewing it. So they could, because they couldn't tell the difference, it would screw with their internal numbers, which screwed with their valuation. So they said, no, we're going to go with that. But, you know, now they're at the point where they they can pretty much chart their own destiny of what they want to do right now. So they might care a little bit less about how that's represented, I guess. I don't know. So they're adding API support for newer features like the super followers and the ability to tweet with limitations on who can reply. So these are like the newest features within Twitter. So those will work through the APIs. The question that is relevant to Clubhouse is Twitter Spaces APIs, which is their version of Clubhouse. And Carl, when he DM'd me yesterday, said that they will have Twitter Spaces APIs, meaning you're going to have Twitter Spaces outside of the Twitter app, in other, which means you might have them as embeds on websites and all kinds of things. Oh, and that kind of leads to, let's see if Mozzie might have something to say here. Okay, welcome, Mozzie. And um, by the way, that leads to another article that's totally related. Um, which is Spotify uh, kind of APIs coming out, where 
Spotify is going to allow their version of Clubhouse rooms, which they call Green Room. Uh, you no longer need the Green Room app to enjoy Spotify's uh, social audio experience, which they call live audio. It's going to be uh, in web pages. You can create a room and it can be a, a, a web, watch it through your browser without ever logging in. Twitter's doing the same, where you can have a Twitter space on, in a browser without ever logging in. And what the, why is that important? It's incredibly important. It's super crazy, ridiculously important. Why? Because if it's on a web page and no one needs to log in, that means it could be at the bottom of any CNN, Newsweek, heaven forbid, Wall Street Journal and New York Times articles so that people can have social audio rooms at the end of every text website or article, like at the end of a Verge article about, you know, um, Facebook or whatever, then the Verge's, the person who, the journalist who wrote the article could be in that social audio room at the bottom of the web page with other people who just got done reading that web page. And maybe, maybe even some people from the company who, of whom the article is about. And that, to me, is what will kick off this whole social audio trend in a very huge way. And I've been screaming since Clubhouse opened that this is exactly what they should be focused on. But it appears that, that, that Twitter and Spotify have both in the past, well, Spotify yesterday is saying this, and I think Twitter announced it in the past week or so. I, to me, I, I think social audio is the, and, and, I, and Clubhouse deserves all the credit for pioneering this and initially popularizing it. I can imagine how colorful the conversations are going to be after those articles. Great point. Can you see the tra- can you see the transitions? Okay, spot what is Spotify in the social audio world, right? What I see is they're going to be like the Linda, like the Linda learning of uh, audio, I think, because they're already structured with playlists to basically organize the information there and then they can put that down on the uh, website like um, uh, Tyler was saying, but Twitter, I think, is staged to be holy cow. They already have the heart. they have all the communication stuff. Installing the voice tech on top of Twitter, which is open, um, that that's that's going to be fast. And then with what you just said, Tyler, putting it down there where you can have like, here's your controlled stuff, right? Here's here's your controlled stuff that you control. But then here's the Twitter sphere, and here's Spotify, like a few a few social audio, uh, uh, you know, API connects in to that space. That is that's the metaverse coming together so fast. It's amazing. Good, good, good insight, dude. So it's, there's a couple other points in here. It says on the Spotify side, kicking off a new slate of shows, uh, they're bringing, they're paying some celebrity hosts to host rooms. And although I'm not familiar with these celebrities in fairness, but um, um, it's only like five shows or whatever, but then this, um, browser-based versions of the rooms that don't require users to log in, I'm assuming, but I don't think it's a huge assumption that that means um, that those can be embeddable, like YouTube videos, because I, I'm i very cognizant in remembering how YouTube uh, really managed to break out against its competitors at the time by allowing the users to embed the videos on their web pages. And you're right, somebody who made that point, Netta, I think, about um, those those social audio conversations at the bottom of, you know, Newsweek articles 
that's going to require some amazing moderation. <laughs> and you know what? In, you're absolutely right. That could be, that could, I mean, it can't be too much worse than the comments, can it? I mean, it's going to be the audio I mean, version. You can actually hear the yelling. I mean, this is going to be like a real <laughs> it's, it's worth remembering that just because you can listen without logging in doesn't mean they're going to let you participate on the stage without logging in. It's the ultimate bait and hook. It's, it's, it's really, really good. Right. So Wait, hold on, hold on a second, dude. These are going to be websites with employees in there too, right? So the employees down there will be have like an employee lounge, especially like franchise systems that are like spread out, and then everybody who's like sitting there, you know, monitoring or doing like administrative work could be just like having social conversations with all the other folks. And oh yeah, I got to go pick this uh, call up, and you can start a queue in there on the web page right there and then. And all these are connected. Um, yeah, that's going to be a big thing, I think. There's another aspect, which is all, of, let's say, for example, a, a social audio app allows this and you've got 100 or 200 or 300 web pages live, all with their social audio rooms at the bottom of their articles. Those rooms could exist in the mother app. So if Clubhouse were to do this, you would have, you know, 300 live rooms, extra live rooms going on simultaneously. Oh, so the real race, so the real race is the race to the APIs, the, the partnerships in this play, dude, right? So Clubhouse has got a race like they're doing with Otter. They got to go jump in with Ring Central. Like this is a race. If you've got Audio Tech, you've got a race to like integrate with everybody else. That's uh, um, in WordPress, for example. The WordPress, you got to come out with a WordPress plugin ooh, fast. Ooh, that you would know? be that would be a genius partnership. Clubhouse and Automatic, which is WordPress. Matt, who's by the way one of the nicest people the world's ever met, and I consider him a dear friend. Matt Mullenwag, who is the the boss behind uh, WordPress, a WordPress Clubhouse partnership would be, oh my God, a oh holy cow, amazing. Um, yes. Yeah, as a, because be really... you, yeah, you you could make it just for a WordPress plug, as they call them, plugins in WordPress land, and have a plugin so that you could have a, a Clubhouse room on a web page within a WordPress uh, site. Yeah. Dude, I totally like totally like went bananas over voice, right? Because l listen, what's gonna happen, right? You got WordPress uh, uh, sites right now, but they're all around text. We're gonna see the emergence of voice first technology, right? Where like and it, like you can have a WordPress web, like it's not it's a space, it's not really a website, it's an experience, uh, uh, an experience that's that's all around voice as the core function, not text. Like that's. And, and and that that's that's gonna happen in WordPress and these things are coming and they're they're massive, man. It's like a massive change. So one of the I, kind of interesting sorry, on, girl. I, I was just gonna push back a little bit and say that, that people are still in a hurry on the internet. The reason why images and uh, small sections of words on text with the, with the images being predominant, it, like that's taken over text, which is what websites originally were, like massive streams of text and information. Audio is still too slow. So I, I would maybe say that it's not going to be completely dominant, but I get your point. I, I, I agree with Carl, because I'll tell you, like, when I go on, like, say, a CNN site, it annoys me that it automatically starts playing some audio or some video, and there's an article there, and I can just get through the article a lot easier. I just want to read the article, and sometimes, you know, it, it's, you know, it, that becomes difficult as, as they're, they're running all this audio. So I, I, I agree with that, you know, you, you know, anyway. So to I actually, mean, what I would I recommend you guys think, just consider the following. Humans just like to do easier functions, right? It's much easier to just talk and not do anything than to click and move around and use more movement in your with your eyes, right? So 
just and then if you look at the experiences, yes, I mean, text is still going to be dominant, but it's going to this is an expansive process that brings so much more people in that are not like readers and text people are and, and are much more voice people. Right. So that's um, uh, something to consider. Something I'm actually also kind of considering that maybe in the future, there's going to be a whole new industry of people for the masses where they're going to have live, you know, maybe um, real time mixing and mastering with audios and people's voice trainings and, you know, because their voice is going to be, you know, their main um, attribution on these uh, on these sites and stuff. So I think there's going to be a huge industry in the whole voice and vocal trainings and, and uh, audio sounds and all sorts of things that's going to be provided to the people who are now going to be, you know, probably sharing their voice more than anything else and their faces that you would see on Instagram, for instance. How, how many of you were um, uh, linked, uh, what's it called, would read and then Audible came and then y'all went to Audible? I know I'm one of those guys, right? I, what I kind of see is there's a box in your hand and you just talk to it and it does everything that you need. There's a lot of illiterate people still in the world, by the way, right? And like being able to just talk to a box and stuff happens and it reads things back to you, right? Like that's kind of what, and then you have all these digital assistants and that's why all this money is being poured, poured into voice because, you know, that's what we want to get to because it's easier as humans for us to just talk and then the stuff appears in front of us, especially in three dimensions and holograms it's coming too. Not necessarily, not necessarily, Mahar. If you remember when Kindle came out and, and other, uh, you know, uh, video reading, audio reading, everybody thought that the written books were going to disappear. And uh, I am one of those people. I just love the paper feeling of reading uh, in my bed before going to bed. And, and, and I'm surprised, actually, the book didn't completely disappear. And uh, the buzz was what you just said, um, that, that overnight the whole book was going to disappear. But it's not. It's still hanging around. So it's just, uh, I think, uh, different people have different preferences. Oh, I didn't say it's going to disappear. It's just it, it, nothing disappears. It's not an either or game. It's just an addition. I think it's just going to expand much more. It's just a new use case that makes it easier for us to and more spend more time interacting with the metaverse uh, as, a, as, a, as a process. That's that, it's I just see like rapid growth. It's not an either or thing. I, I could actually give you another example, by the way, where uh, and this is kind of relatively new in, in time. Where, where text actually has enhanced or even been better than audio. So we're in, we're in earnings season now, and all these companies are doing conference calls. The conference call usually takes an hour if you listen to it live, but now they're producing more accurate transcripts. They were producing transcripts even 20 years ago, but they weren't getting a lot of the words right. Now the transcripts are, are fairly accurate, and I can get through a, 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 an hour conference call transcript in just a few minutes reading it versus having to listen to the call live or having to listen to a replay that's going to take an hour of my time. So there's still certain advantages just being able to read something uh, versus listening to voices. There's one, there, there's was, a there was also, sorry, Tyler, there was right, also, I think, um, I, I don't know where I read it, but they also, there is a psychology or some understanding in our brain when we are reading, actually, by looking at the text, actually, we absorb much more than just listening. I think I've read something like that, um, and that, that's just a, a human brain, that the way it absorbs knowledge. 
Uh, I've read the opposite. I've actually read, I was um, speaking at a conference recently and I was doing research about how people, like, you know, exactly talking about this topic, whether people are going to switch to audio completely. But what the study said, um, I think it was from the University of Berkeley, uh, was that basically the center in the brain responsible for processing voice versus text is actually the same center. And the way that we process the information is the same, whether we read it or whether we hear it. I want to get into more, more articles here. The, the, uh, there, there is one tweet that pithily um, summarizes the, the point. His name is uh, Dieter Bonn, and he says, if Twitter actually makes good on these API promises, it would be a massive rollback of its terrible policies limiting third-party apps from so long ago. I want to believe, but I also see it used the phrase doubling down in, in its uh, PR release. So uh, <laughs> he's a little concerned. And somebody else says, uh, um, don't be fooled by the, uh, don't, don't let their marketing sweet talk you in. Twitter APIs remain hostile to developers unless you're a massive company. So yeah, people are still smarting from last time around. So the next article is all about this hot new thing called the Constitution DAO, Constitution DAO, which has taken in four million, more than $4 million in crypto donations to bid at an auction on one of the original copies of the U.S. Constitution printed in 1787. And our friend Jeremiah Oyang, who joins us regularly, tweets about this saying, yes, I'm part of this DAO that is planning to purchase the U.S. Constitution with crypto. Yes, this is for real. No, I'm not the Asian Nick Cage uh, listed in the, <laughs> somebody is, uh, when they show the participants of the DAO, it shows their usernames. One of them is Asian Nick Cage. And he says, no, I'm not Asian Nick Cage. Yes, we will create NFTs of the Constitution to preserve it on the blockchain and create memes and etc. Um Anyone have a, a take on this DAO that's essentially been put together to make a collective bid on the Constitution? I, I hope that they use that money that they got, uh, some of that money to actually create a, you know, kind of like a standard terms of use for the Metaverse uh, Constitution that we could all kind of uh, democratically uh, get involved in around the world and and make an option for people mm -hmm. to look at. That'd be kind of nice. So I had a, I have a thought on this. This could get, this itself could become um, the beginnings of something far bigger. For example, when Donald Trump announced his ambitions to run for presidency in the 2016 election, I thought, uh, well, this guy's this guy's interests in life are essentially to make a lot of money. I mean, that's kind of been his, you know, MO from the beginning. So I wonder, perhaps people, there could be a crowdfunding campaign to raise a billion dollars um, to have him um, concede, you know, to whoever he was running against, right? So I worked with Stripe and others to to enable that, to try and enable that. And Stripe seemed the, uh, like I start. I have a lot of friends who work at Stripe, 
and we tried to get this to happen. The problem is we couldn't hold the money for more than it was like 12 days or 21 days or something like that. So it became technically very impossible to do because we needed to hold the money for like six months, right? Which is a very unusual crowdfunding campaign. It's like, <laughs> we're going to hold it and we don't know if we're going to return it all to you or if we're going to give it to this person might accept it or not. not. It just became uh, not feasible, technically, logistically, legally uh, infeasible. However, this seems like such a, th this is why I'm saying now you could have crowdfunding campaigns like this for things that are unconventional or or infeasible according to the terms of services of, you know, uh, GoFundMe uh, and the typical crowdfunding sites that have their own policies. Now you could do things that uh, don't require any kind of policies or compliances with anybody because you could make a DAO. Everyone could, ch ch you know, you could set your own rules, set your own terms. Yeah, so Tyler, I, I, yes. I, I agree, but I think it's even bigger because um, now we're talking about the digitization of all assets. So imagine, you know, uh, probably Ken knows how many hundreds of billions or uh, hundreds of trillions of dollars there are in assets around the world. But, you know, whether it's real estate, a constitution, a stock, a derivative, it can now be digitized on the blockchain. And things like real estate, insurance, things that are not so liquid can be um, fractionalized as this constitution is. And ownership is much easier to acquire now. Yeah, the fractional ownership part is also super interesting with real estate and, and anything, major works of art or what have you. Um, or like the Constitution, which is what this is about. And that, that's exactly right. This opens up a whole ton of fractional ownership opportunities. In so, I mean, fr fractional ownership of real estate kind of always existed, like with timeshares. I guess now it's going to be more automated is, is probably the suggestion, right? You automate timeshares or something and put it on a blockchain. Yeah, but and it, it gets fractionalized way down. I mean, uh, it, it, what you're talking about, maybe I need, um, yeah, I don't know in the U.S. how it works, but let's say I need tens of thousands of U.S. dollars to buy a piece of a condo. Now you can be in a developing world and buy, you know, um, and theoretically dollars worth of that fractionalized share. So you can, it, it, it democratizes these assets. So anyone can own a piece of a Manhattan property now, and that is an asset that is going to appreciate. So you're, you're going to need massive legal about, by the way. Because what about on the, what about on the sell side? Who also has real estate laws, and you know, I mean, that's what that was the whole issue when they had the mortgage crisis. That we have uh, antiquated laws that require a whole bunch of uh, paperwork that wasn't getting done, and mortgages that weren't recorded properly. So all of this is possible, but I'm going to tell you, for real estate, particularly for Manhattan real estate, you're going to have to have a whole lot of changes to real estate law before you can. You just can't just go out and do this stuff. I mean, that's a, as a practical consideration. Yeah, I was going to add in the UK, especially in London, local government authorities already now offer shared ownership for those people who are wanting to get on the property ladder. So I can really see how this would work with that, with local government schemes. Yeah, I, I agree with those so comments. Going and, back and, and, the... and I just, just wanted to add in quickly that um, this, we're, we're touching on a subject where um, both technology and law 
needs to evolve. And this thing that we're talking about, if it's the metaverse, I'm not sure, but there needs to be a new set of laws for this area. Ben, you wanted to say something? Yeah, actually interesting. Speaking of constitution, I actually have a copy of a US constitution that I used in law school. And uh, I like a constitutional law, so I took one course with taught by one Supreme Court justice who was very, was very, very liberal. So I had him sign my copy, the cover. And then my, my second course was taught by a very conservative justice. So when I presented that copy of the Constitution to have him sign autograph, he goes, hmm, you know, you already have this person on the cover. Why don't I just sign the back cover? So I actually have a copy of Constitution, the front signed by a very liberal U.S. Supreme Court justice, the back uh, signed by a very conservative one. So he was joking to me. He was like, well, now you have the whole range of constitutional interpretation. So perhaps some days that copy of the Constitution could be worth something. And I can put it on one of those sites, um, you know, maybe make an NFT out of it. On a serious matter, I think what Craig was saying about the law and the technology, I, I do agree. I think, uh, you know, the SEC, the FTC, and maybe even more agencies are going to be getting involved. And I don't know whether that's necessarily a bad thing for the whole crypto or even metaverse uh, world. I think uh, if we want to, if we want to develop uh, those technological areas, better sensible regulation could be a help versus a hindrance. Anyway, that's just uh, some thoughts of mine. Uh, the next one's from Financial Times that Coinbase co-founder and ex-Sequoia partner have teamed up to announce a new fund called Paradigm One, raising $2.5 billion fund focused on crypto and Web3. That's a very, very big fund for a three a, a new fund like that. Um, and, and further evidence that uh, there's a big appetite for the space. The next one is from the Financial Times that Substack says it has reached 1 million paying subscribers up from 250,000 last December. So a 400% growth in a year. And if they keep that up for three more years, oh boy, is journalism in trouble. So uh, then Glenn Greenwald tweets about it saying, in case you've been wondering why there is never ending tidal wave of identical articles from liberal corporate media outlets attempting to malign and disparage Substack using the same script over and over, and he's definitely right about that. Um, and then he links to this. Here, I'll tweet it out so you can see it. <clears throat> and he's talking about, uh, it's a tweet from Brian, um, CNN's chief media correspondent and anchor, Brian Stelter, tweeted out. He says, a one million milestone substack on Monday said, there are more than 1 million paid subscriptions to publications on its platform up from 250,000 in December. And that's why, you know, the media's on the, on the attack to take Substack down because this is a gun to their head because this is a way for journalists to work independently, autonomously, um, for their own on Substack, and so to have a million people subscribing to these uh, newsletters on Substack, it, that four hundred percent growth is really freaking good. I gotta say. So the next one is 
Oh, Andrew Chen from Andreessen Horowitz also tweets, although they're a major investor, so I imagine it will be very positive. He says it's still early days for Substack, but incredible momentum so far. And uh, Pomp, who's a, a CNBC contributor and a blogger and a crypto enthusiast, says Substack is a very special company. It is great to see them reaching the $1 million subscriber mark or the 1 million subscriber mark, hopefully just the first million on the way to many more. Congratulations to the founders. And one of the founders, Hamish says, fun fact, a little over four years ago, there were zero paid subscribers to Substack. Today we're at 1 million. Um, the next one is at Peloton Sue's rival fitness company called Echelon and iFit, claiming that both violated patents related to its on-demand classes. If they win that, then uh, those patents are very, very valuable. But I highly doubt that you're going to, well, maybe they win it if the patent is on-demand classes for fitness, but then you could sue Apple because now Apple's doing that as well. But maybe it needs to be tied to some hardware. Um, it depends on what the patent says, but that'll be an interesting case. The next one is Ohio Attorney General sues Facebook on behalf of an Ohio pension fund and other uh, Facebook investors, alleging that Facebook executives misled the public about its product's negative impacts on minors. And this will be uh, an ongoing drama that we will watch. I'm gonna predict now that uh, Facebook's gonna win that one, and but time will tell. But it's certainly inspired by the whistleblower and the the Facebook files that came out. Lo what is, oh, okay. It says the lawsuit filed on behalf of Facebook investors and Ohio Public Employees Retirement System, which is a pension fund, seeks to recover more than $100 billion. How are they going to recover? I mean, they didn't even have an investment that's that large. No I way mean, if that. Facebook... If Facebook is worth, I mean, let's call it a trillion. I mean, Ohio doesn't own ten percent of Facebook, so I don't, I don't know how. And 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 by the way, Facebook stock really hasn't, you know, gone down or anything. So I mean, I, I mean, how did they claim a hundred billion dollars in damages? Yeah, I think one of the can one of the things is that part of that damage request is probably for punitive damages. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, a, yeah. it's a government filed lawsuit. So they're they're saying, oh, you are doing something really bad. You're hurting children, and those damages can be, you know, huge. No, right, and they're and they're, and, and, they're, point, and they're trying to get extra money for the pension fund. So that that's basically what they're doing. Yeah. Right, but but about your point about the stock prices, it would be interesting. You know, if the stock price actually goes down, you're going to see uh, even more lawsuits from the shareholder derivative lawsuits. So, but so far it hasn't happened that way, but. You know, wait till um, the stock, I mean, God forbid, uh, does go down. Then there will be even a lot more um, lawsuits from private individuals, you know, law firms, yeah. um, stock uh, prices. The it's article, called the derivative lawsuits. Yeah. The but article so says that the lawsuit alleges that between April 29 and October 21st of this year, Facebook's and its executives violated federal securities laws by intentionally misleading the public about the negative impact of its products on minors in an effort to boost its stock and deceive shareholders. 
misleading about negative. Facebook said it was looking at out for our children and weeding out online trolls, but in reality was creating misery and decisiveness for profit. The quote, the truth began to emerge on September 13, 2021, when the Wall Street Journal published, this is a quote, by the way, uh, the truth began to emerge uh, when the Wall Street Journal published the first of a series of articles referred to as the Facebook files, the lawsuit states, in reference to reporting by the journal that showed the company knows that its platforms are riddled with flaws that cause harm. The Facebook file series revealed that the company knew its photo sharing app, Instagram, was harmful to some teenage girls, among other things. Those revelations led Facebook stock to fall by $54 a share and caused the Ohio Public Employment Retirement System and other Facebook investors to lose more than $100 billion. Oh, now I see what they're going on about. Well, you, <laughs> this, this, this whole thing, um, the Facebook stock goes down not only because of and almost and it's when when if you look back during that time frame that they're talking about, so when they say from April twenty nine to October twenty one, the all tech stocks went through a cycle where they went down. So Facebook would have gone down anyways. And the the share price change due to um, the Facebook files has been very, very negligible. That they'll be able to demonstrate that the burden will be on this whoever is filing the suit to prove that the, the downward movement in the stock price was based on these Wall Street Journal articles. And even then, that's not illegal for a price to go down due to some news. The news, and, and it did not go down a lot. I mean, usually when you see a, a shareholder suit that's somewhat legitimate, you have a stock crashing. So I think the story's actually only been out for what, maybe thirty days or something, or you know, um, since October. Is that right? This Tyler, maybe October first was when this started breaking a little earlier. Right. I mean, October first stock was at you know three thirty nine, and now it's at three forty. So I mean, it's who cares. Right. I mean, it's, it's, if you look at Facebook's one-year or five-year chart, there's no clear evidence of any. You're right. When bad, when when legitimate bad news happens, there's a very significant fall or whatever. That really hasn't occurred. There was a dip that started happening at September 10th uh, to October 15th, but that was true across tech broadly. So you can't say that that was due to the wall the the Facebook files, Wall Street Journal reporting, and you would have this person would have to prove that that stock dip was related with that the Wall Street Journal articles is what led to that, which you can't prove. I could, in fact, I think I would, I could disprove that myself, let alone Facebook's lawyers. And furthermore, you would have to show that the Wall Street Journal articles were correct. Which again, I think I can disprove, and I think I have disproven that in this room. And I think Facebook's lawyers can even do an even better job than I did about disproving that. So this, I don't see how this is going to work. Well, they're probably looking well, for a settlement. I mean, that that's an unfortunate situation in this country with, with litigation, you know, we're litigation happy and people settle because even big companies settles because it's not, you know, you know you know, worth it. I mean, the attorney general of Ohio 
basically, you know, he can he can just litigate forever because he's a government lawyer. And so they're probably looking for a settlement. They'll put some money into the pension fund. I, I, I've never really particularly liked derivative lawsuits. Um, I mean, you're basically suing your own company. I mean, if you have real damages, you know, the stock crashed and maybe you sold in a panic or something. I mean, th- th- this whole notion of, um, you know, th- they're damaged by all of this and that Facebook did it to make profits. Well, they were shareholders. They participated in those profits and they participated in the stock appreciation. I mean, it's like, uh, it, it, but this is the country. This is unfor- it's an unfortunate part of the United States. The, the, these derivatives, it's anyway, I'm done. Okay, next one. I mean, up. if they didn't actually sell the, sorry, if they didn't actually sell the stock and no actual damages, and I believe the stock prices recovered, right? Yeah. Kept, kept it, right? But, but I'm saying, so, you, usually when you see these things, there's, there's like a real significant impairment. By the way, there were two stocks today that I know of, um, uh, um, both um, related to technology, and I tweeted them out, that declined something like 25% single day. One of them, one of them had a CEO resign. Um, and the other one was a, a Bitcoin mining company that the initial report was at decline because they were doing a massive convertible issue. And some people thought it was dilutive, but then it turns out there was also some sort of SEC investigation. You know, when you, when you decline 25% in a single day, that's the thing you see. But the, and by the way, that, that, that Bitcoin mining company all of the ambulance chasing law firms, they, they, they immediately, you can see that they're, they're all filing, you know, suits, hoping to be, you know, representing whatever class, you know, shows up. But th- that's a legitimate case because, you know, the stock did decline 25 percent and there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Right. Um, so but, you know, this didn't this didn't happen like that here at Facebook. So what, what if it turns out? that the Wall Street Journal's reporting of this um, did have some impact on the stock going down, but that it was based on misinformation of a sort where Facebook can say, um, you know, they're reporting, this by the way is Facebook's position even before this lawsuit was announced. Facebook says, yeah, you're reporting totally misconstrues what's in these documents. And and so they did their own blog post saying, here's what these documents are really about. And we went through that with, you know, in great detail here in this room. And um, that this damn that perhaps somebody could sue the Wall Street Journal for making for face for claiming you're, you're I think you might have a better case of suing the Wall Street Journal than suing Facebook in this in this case. If I was the Ohio Attorney General, um, but this will that will be interesting to watch in court. And I say that because there's been several cases in recent months and years of CNN settling suits uh, for substantial amounts, and even Joe Rogan uh, suing CNN and um, a, a high school student in Kentucky settled. He was suing for two hundred seventy-five million dollars, for example, and. It's now I heard I was watching uh, a bit of TV yesterday and one one legal mind was suggesting that because uh, we're getting up to the very end of this, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial from Kenosha, Wisconsin. And now it's 
looking like he, he will likely come out looking very good in the end of this trial. Uh, that's what even CNN Cuomo it was the piece that I saw. Even he's acknowledging that it's likely that he's going to walk. And CNN now, <laughs> the response to that was CNN itself might get sued now by Kyle Rittenhouse for cause for and that all of this National Guard that's on standby and the fact that they had to have an 18 person jury that they then picked 12 out of the reason that you do that you're that you would have to do a scenario like that. Normally you have a 12 person jury. So why do you have an 18 person jury? Well, because the public has been so misfed of misinformation that they might try to retaliate against the jurors if the jurors, you know, decide, uh, you know, in a way that the the misinformed public doesn't agree with. So you have well, to have Tyler, eight, just on yeah, that the, point, just, though, just to finish the point, I the, the strategy of having 18 jurors so that you can have plausible deniability and say, hey, I wasn't. Yeah, I was on the jury, but I was one of the 18, not one of the 12. So it gives everyone on the jury uh, plausible deniability so that they won't be manhunted. The, the only reason you do that is because you know you have a wildly misinformed public. And the only part that I'm going to push back on is this labeling of misinformation, because um, I, I think that it's all a bit nuanced. I've not watched it in detail, but, you know, we, we all know, particularly those of us that have spent any amount of time in the U.S., that the criminal justice system is not always, you know, um, you know, it, it's about how cases are argued and what kind of evidence is allowed to appear. So I, I just want to just clarify on that point. But as just going back to the Facebook lawsuit um, that was brought about by the Ohio Attorney General. So I, I have some of my retirement in the state of Ohio, having worked there for several years. And I wonder how, if given his position, I mean, he's a political appointee, or he's elected, I should say. He's not a, a, an appointee. I believe he's an elected official. But, you know, I, I think that there could be some politics at play as well. So even if it's not a lock-solid case, um, you know, there just might be a bit of political pressure or, you know, enticement to go ahead and file suit because the losses were, you know, so great. And as, you know, attorney general, you know, he has a, he has fiduciary responsibility for, you know, the, for the people whose um, um, pensions are held by the state. The next one is that Amazon, speaking of lawsuits, Amazon agrees to pay 500,000 to California for concealing COVID-19 case numbers from its workers. The first such action under the state's new right to know law. And the next one is researchers say they used a new raw hammer, a row hammer exploit to successfully fl flip bits on a RAM memory card, a um, some DRAM device that they tested defeating recent hardware mitigations. Researchers build fuzzer that supercharges potentially serious bit flipping exploits. So that is your daily reminder uh, that all of your devices are uh, a bunch of Swiss cheese and now your memory cards uh, as well. And yesterday the headline was from Intel and AMD acknowledging that they have between them about 50 different exploits in their, in their chips. So it's 
you, your machines and your devices are literally Swiss cheese. So, so when when do we start calling it Pongware? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, Super Pwn. You get the pro, the pro, the the Pwnware Plus Pro Max. So the next one is Apple defends its ads for third-party apps. Oh, oh, this is an update from the big story yesterday, where. It was alleged that uh, Apple is buying ads uh, on ab about Tinder and what was the other ones? Hulu? What was it? Uh, uh, some media streaming site. Netflix. No, no, HBO, HBO. HBO. It was HBO Plus and Tinder and a few others. Plenty of Fish was another one. Uh, that Apple's buying ads, for example, Tinder and HBO. And when you click on the ads, you come over to the app store and you subscribe and that's it. And well, Apple gets its 30% cut. Well, this was a big surprise to many app developers because it, was, it wasn't obvious who's paying for these ads. Well, it kind of is obvious because only one person can make money from those ads and that would be Apple. So you'd be a complete, you know, nutcase to be buying ads if you can't make money from them. And Apple's the only one who could make money from them. So it kind of was obvious, but it was not transparent. Like it wasn't known. So, Apple's now defending its ads for third-party apps, saying they are marked as from the App Store, have been live for five years, and it regularly communicates with developers. Let's, well, I, I think it's as simple as that. Uh, um, it says, I'm, I'm not following it, Tyler. I'm not following why this is not attractive to the app vendors. If you have a reseller agreement with someone and they're selling it for you, that's like what you want. I think it's yeah. like, I mean, no? Yeah, no, that's what true. I, I think what, what you're missing is, is they didn't realize they had agreed to a reseller agreement. Well, I think that seems to be their problem, but it's a delightful problem. Somebody's selling it for you. So what? Uh, well, selling is a very expensive thing. Yes, but so it post the decision that Apple, I think they did prior to when, when Apple was getting a 30% cut, no matter what, then you're right. It makes no difference. You should be incredibly happy that they're selling your apps. They're getting a 30% cut, whether they run an ad, an ad or not. The difference is now that the apps can sell directly and not pay the 30% cut, they don't want Apple selling and taking their 30% cut. They want to all, they want to, uh, have every new user that they acquire be paying the full amount and not the 70%, so to speak. I see. So you're saying they renegotiated one channel, but not the other channel. I'm saying... So now the, Apple says, I can't charge you 30% here, but I can charge you 30% this other place, and I'm going right. to go after that. Right. And they're, they're thinking, oh, wait a minute, we don't want you to do that because we want to go out and run our own ads and try and get everyone to pay directly to us so we get the full amount. And if they, if they had started to recalculate their customer acquisition cost and their, then they say, ah, now our customer acquisition, you know, now we're doing our own marketing. Here's how much the lifetime customer value of the customer is based on $20 a month. And the average person, the churn rate is X. And that means we get, you know, $1,000 from every customer. That means we can spend X number of dollars acquiring customers. And then Apple jumps in as like, does a big cannonball in the pool 
you know, like and messes with that whole model. So because now you don't now you don't know what your customer acquisition costs are. Now you don't know what your lifetime customer value costs are going to be because some percentage of your users are going to be split or bifurcated between your marketing efforts and Mar Apple's marketing efforts. And they would prefer uh, that things be very uh, streamlined or clean. So it's either all 30% like it wasn't before where, you know, it was very clear Apple's going to get us 30% or it's very clear that we get 100% and no one else is in, involved. But to have both going on simultaneously when you didn't realize that was going to happen, that, then they just have to go back and recalculate things and it makes a bit of a headache. But uh, Apple is going to say, well, if you don't like it, you can leave the App Store. And of course, they're not going to leave the App Store. But they That's didn't realize. I, th I think many developers didn't realize that part of their developer agreement gave Apple the ability to function in this way as a kind of reseller. Yes. Instead. Yeah. <laughs> it does seem quite incompetent on their part. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's very clever on Apple's part, but it makes perfect sense. And kudos to Apple and its lawyers for anticipating <laughs> to put that clause in there oh, uh, that that day would come. So um, the next one is that Pew Research says that 42% of U.S. users read Twitter primarily for entertainment, 20% for news, one-third of users visit Twitter less than once a week, 66% visit at least weekly. Only 20% for news, really. 42% primarily for entertainment. Okay. Well, I guess if that's the word phrasing is, do you primarily use it for entertainment or primarily for news? Yeah. yeah I guess uh, not many use it primarily for news. Okay. The next one is Biden signs a $1 trillion infrastructure bill into law. $55 billion to boost broadband access, which is what the geeks care about. $475 million in grants to help low-income Americans acquire computing devices, which is something Sweden did in the 80s, where basically everybody got a computer one year. And this is why Stockholm, with a million people, you know, the size of Fresno, California, has 20 unicorns. Um, because everyone got a computer when they were 10 years old here, and now they're unicorn founders. So the next one is Google says it will invest um, one so billion. So just quickly on the last one, Tyler, yeah. in there, another important one that was in there was the several hundred million for EV. So they're really going in hard on setting up um, EV points, uh, charging points, which is just excellent news for the yeah. movement. Yeah. The Google says it will invest one billion Australian dollars over five years into a new Australian digital future initiative to create jobs and build its first research hub in Australia. Okay, next up, Nigeria says 488,000 people downloaded the new Nigerian crypto wallet called the Inaira. It's a central bank digital currency and 78,000 merchants from 160 countries enrolled to use it. I have a comment. Go ahead, Greg. Um, yeah, just sort of off the cuff comment. Um, first of all, I, I don't think this is going to be successful, this uh, government CBDC, but it's interesting to follow it. Um, 
I guess my main point is CBDCs are just another way to allow governments to print unlimited amount of funds. And how the adoption works of this remains to be seen. The numbers look low to me. Hmm. Okay. The next one is a new one from Fred Wilson. And we've not mentioned Fred Wilson other than maybe once in the history of tech news. But Fred Wilson is absolutely one of the key VC investors um, in the U.S. He's based in New York traditionally, although he spends his summers in Venice Beach and <laughs> parts of the year in Venice Beach and uh, is a fantastic guy, I have to say, um, and has been in the game uh, since the beginning and been an incredible investor since the beginning. And um, so he has a blog called AVC, which has historically been one of the most important blogs. And I have to say, looking back now from in the rearview mirror of 2021, being one of the top uh, venture capitalists, you know, back when that was like a rare thing. Now everyone's trying to do it. But Fred was legitimately one of the pioneers in this game. And not only was he a leading VC, he was one of the first leading VCs who wrote a blog which again, everyone does now, but kudos to Fred for blazing the trail that, you know, uh, startup VCs could get on a blog and start sharing critical, critical, important insights and perspectives and educating an entire generation of entrepreneurs and aspiring investors. And, um, and now we take it for granted that, you know, anyone can jump into the startup game because all the information's out there because a lot of VCs are tweeting and blogging and, um, and we uh, kind of, we all sort of owe a little bit to uh, Fred Wilson for, for setting the, the, the pace car on all of that. Anyway, so his he's still blogging and he wrote a blog post today that's gotten quite popular. It says that he's talking about seed rounds. Seed rounds is, you know, the first fundraising that a startup does. And it's usually a very small amount where they raise, you know, a few thousand, you know, 25000 50000 $100,000. Typically, back in the day, at a $1 million valuation or so. And, he, and he's writing about these new seed rounds at $1 million valuations. $100 million, sorry, $100 million valuations, which is just absurd totally like what wtf is going on here how can you have a seed round meaning it's an idea seed rounds is when you know you've got barely more than a napkin to show how can you have a hundred million valuation for a napkin drawing essentially he says so seed rounds at 100 million you know valuations now fairly common are unlikely to perform well for investors given dilution and early startups high failure rate and he's absolutely right about that and he's basically ringing the alarm because he's been in this game a very long time and he's seen the cycles go up and down um, as they have and he does some math and he shows the math of if you get into a startup who has a hundred million valuation at the seed stage the math just does not work. Like you're betting that this company must become, you know, the next Facebook for this to work. 
so what are you doing investing in the company at that kind of valuation? And, and he mentions this because you have so many new investors coming in who just don't know the math of the game. All they know is, oh, that's a great idea. I like that. Or I like that founder. And they're, they don't quite understand how, how important the valuations are at the very early stages because they only have, they have to go up. <laughs> they, and they have to go up a lot, a lot for the math to work out. It's so the how can, yeah. So, but how can a, how can a startup continue to go from a hundred million at the seed stage? That means you got to get to a hundred billion at the end stage. Like what? Like, you know how rare that is? So it's, uh, I think he's just alerting the, the kind of the new folks who are piling into tech as to they need to go back and take a business class on the economics of startups and uh, startup uh, investing. And so he, he lays it out. He lays out the numbers and he says, Tyler's probably not surprising given the, I'm, I'm not saying it's justified, but not surprising given the increase in valuations. And we now have trillion dollar market cap companies. And every day you're talking about new unicorns I mean, you have companies going public with incredible valuations that have never been profitable. And, you know, 30 years ago, you couldn't even bring a company public without three years of gap profit, profitability. So I just think this is just kind of par for the course of where we are in the markets. Soon we're going to be using the word quadrillion and have a new word beyond unicorn. This is just another inflation story. It doesn't matter if you talk about Shiba and Nino. Um, these shares, as Fred's pointing out, are being inflated. And uh, yeah, the numbers don't add up. I just kudos to him taking a, a leadership role and kind of <laughs> as he's done over the years, like just to keep everybody sane from time to time. The, the next one's from CNBC. Big data analytics service called Splunk announces the CEO will be stepping down and replaced by its board chair. Effective immediately stop the stock drops eighteen percent. Does anyone know why? What what happened there? Um, I, I I tweeted that article and and I didn't look at it that carefully. I wasn't even familiar with the company. I just kind of saw it that there was a major downdraft in the stock, and I think it's the CEO resigning. I think that the uh, stock has underperformed. You know the S and P five hundred, um, but I, I don't. I didn't read anything like really particularly bad, but maybe I missed it. No, um, I just read the article. It doesn't point to anything specific. Yeah. So you saw the same thing I did. Yeah. Um, but you know, a CEO, a CEO leaving could be, you know, and also it depends what the valuation on the company. I mean, that's, a, you know, you talk about valuations when you, you have stuff valued for, for perfection, then any, any kind of uh, little ding, like a CEO leaving or, you know, or, or maybe growth being a little bit less than, you know, people want. I mean, it takes a lot off the stock because the valuations are, you know, stretched. So Bird, out of Santa Monica, California, who pioneered the little electric scooter craze, uh, does their Q3 revenue of $65 million, up 63% year over year. Um, yeah. The, the scooter craze continues here in Europe, especially. The next one is Microsoft says it will block tools like Edge 
deflector that stop Windows 11 from using its Edge browser. Okay, and uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the DHS, issues an interim rule that will, once finalized, let it hire cybersecurity professionals at salaries of up to $255,000 and up to $332,000 in special cases. This, by the way, is a very good move because the Department of Homeland Security needs to have access to uh, very top-notch cybersecurity professionals, and those people work for at least $255,000 a year. So if if the Department of Homeland Security was only allowed to hire people at a, you know $125,000 a year, well, that's why we're getting hacked to pieces. So now they've got the, the proper budgeting. Um, it, it was a clerical issue that they have to be able to pay more market values for these experts that they desperately need. If the you're next, not pulling your security experts from the likes of Google and Facebook and Amazon, if you're not, you know, like um, headhunting them and pulling them away from those companies, then you're behind. That's that's just it. And the problem is those companies are have no problem paying those <laughs> those numbers. Exactly. So, yeah. The next one is from the Wall Street Journal about the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, forces AT&T and Verizon to delay their 5G rollouts. A look at the FAA and the FCC's dispute over 5G and cockpit safety. Um, so they're, they're having trouble with their 5G rollouts, especially near airports, which is where a lot of people want 5G in an airport. So um, what else? We've got mixed panel raises 200 million. And a look at Epic Games' failed multi-year effort to launch Fortnite in China as it shuts down Fortnite Chinese servers. Another victim of the new sort of GDPR of China, the personal information rule. Roblox will invest $10 million in nonprofits, including Boston's Museum of Science, to build three games for middle school, high school, and college students. And Zesty, which helps companies reduce cloud computing costs by using AI to avoid repetitive tasks, raises $35 million. Those are your boring headlines for today. Let's refresh it, Cheryl, and let's see what we have here. New ones since last time. Okay, so we get into the tweets. Tyler, I saw one that's quite interesting, but you didn't go through. Um, the one regarding the doctors. Do you see? That is under new on top. Oh, okay. Yes. Doctors and researchers say social media is contributing to the rise of negative body image issues and eating disorders cases among boys that one yes yes Wall Street remember Journal. previously we have one article regarding the girls and now it's the boys previously it was about facebook and now it's about all of social media so yeah. the article says boys have eating disorders too doctors think social media is making it worse And it says, eating disorders are on the rise among boys, say doctors, who think images and videos of social media are a factor. Pediatric wards are seeing more eating disorder cases overall, with boys making an increasing share of patients. Cases with boys are often more severe than with girls, the doctors say, because boys' disorders often go unnoticed until they are far along, and because eating disorders are largely believed to 
to mostly affect young women. In some cases, slimmer boys are bulking up to gain muscle mass. In others, bigger boys are slimming down to look more toned or to improve athletic performance. Boys who work out often receive praise in person and on social media posts for seemingly healthy habits and appearances. Um, and then it tells the case of a, a baseball player. Uh, doctors and university researchers say social media is contributing factor in boys' body issues. They experience body image comparisons on social media just as girls do. Social media algorithms also push exercise videos and posts that research has found can lead to disordered eating. Causes of disordered eating are complex and varied, which is why doctors are careful to point out that social media is but one factor. Kids may be influenced to lose weight based on comments from people in their lives in these cases, including that of Mr. Henry. Social media isn't necessarily the cause, but it's an enabler. Okay, so now they're this is what this is the problem is this propensity for these what used to be respectable journalist outlets um now they make headlines ah boys you know social media is causing boys to uh have you know anorexia or whatever and then they say ah but we're very careful to say it's just one factor and it's not the cause but an enabler Okay, well, now you've got nothing again. You're back to, you just, you had this big statement and now you've walked it back twice. Once by saying it's just one factor. Okay. And in the fact that it's that one factor, it's not actually the cause. It's just an enabler. Oh, well, come on now. What, what is it? Is it is it is what you just claimed in the headline or you have to walk it back two degrees? You're doing two degrees of backpedaling here. It's one factor and in that one factor it's not the cause but the enablers come on then don't write headlines like this i understand you got to sell you're desperate you're thirsty your business is dying i understand i get that but you're misleading people because now you're going to get district attorneys from ohio suing social media companies because they read it in the wall street journal but as we always say, correlation is not causation. So if I were to nerd out a little bit in statistics, though, it could be a mediating factor, which would not imply causation, but it would imply that, you know, the relationship has a higher propensity when social media is taken into account. So I don't think that it's entirely wrong. No, um, but 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 I, but I do think that it's important to to just kind of call out the point that even though it says that it doesn't cause it, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a relationship. In fact, I think right. what they are saying is that there is a relationship, it's just not causal. And causal behaviors are really, really, really difficult to prove in the social world. I mean, outside of being a lab rat, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's really difficult to, I mean, it needs to be a pure experiment uh, in order to say A causes B. But what most research does is say that these are factors that are related to X or to Y. And I think that's what this article is saying. Yeah, well, they have to because the doctors are in no position to make any claims like this. They're not researchers. They don't under, they're not statistics, you know, statisticians. So they can give professional opinions, 
but they can't say causal that to your point they're not they they're in no position to say that it's causal so um kudos to them i mean they did the right thing they're saying you know we understand legally we can't say it's causal we understand we say it's you know a contributing factor and it's you know at that it's an enabler they're doing they're saying all the right things my my beef is not at all with the doctors in fact i'm going to applaud the doctors for highlighting that this is a reality I agree it's an issue, right? Um, it, I'm not surprised by the article at all. What I, what, what's disturbing is, you know, um, boys have, you know, how they're trying to sell more pieces by making inflammatory, you know, um, clickbait, which uh, if if they're not careful can lead to like why the Ohio attorney general is trying to sue Facebook for a hundred billion dollars because of something he read in the wall street journal. Not, and, and I don't, I'm not even really, I'm partly blaming the Ohio attorney general because he should know better than to believe everything he reads in the wall street journal. But it used to be that you could, it wasn't that long ago. You could read stuff in, you know, if it was in black and white in the New York times and these very prestigious papers, you, you could presume that what you're reading has been thoroughly researched and that there's no bias and there's no angle, let alone a jihad, let alone activism, which is what's happening. And it's very regrettable. And that's why you hear me ranting about this, because that's what I worry about, is that you're going to get wildly misinformed people. And that's what we're suffering from. And it's a, it's a very, this whole era of, you know, post-truth misinformation syndrome that we're all suffering from is incredibly concerning. And that's why I, I referenced the, 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 the Rittenhouse trial that's going on and the potential rights that will happen as a result of that case. And the, all, you know, there's, there's no shortage of misinformation around COVID and everything else. And it's like the, the press could, could do much better than it's doing. And uh, anywho, so the, Thank you for pointing that one out, Cheryl. Uh, we'll get into the tweets as we do. And the first tweet that I have is from Saudamini that charities are seeing more donations in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum as the biggest cryptocurrencies flirt with record high values. They're increasingly becoming bigger sources of revenue for charities. Very cool. Love that one. The next one is Amazon Prime video app arrives on Mac OS. Amazon today announced that it was rolling out the Amazon Prime video app on MacBooks and Mac desktops. The next one is from Saudamini that American Airlines and Affirm, which is the buy now, pay later company, um, that was born out of the U.S. by Max Levchin of PayPal, are offering installment payment plans for flights. Book a flight now, pay it off later. As an affirmed shareholder, I love that. But uh, that's, I guess that could be very helpful to some people who might really need to take a flight that they might not be able to afford today, but they desperately need to take. That could be very cool. But... Uh, the next one is, yeah. Who wants to go to Bali? <laughs> Swedes in November dreaming of sunshine. Uh, that, that's what you heard right there. Greg, you want, you want to talk about uh, November in Sweden? 
it's getting very dark already. <laughs> so uh, the birds want to fly south. The, the next one is Amazon settles California lawsuit. We covered that one just a minute ago. Thank you, Sao Domini. And from the BBC, gigabit broadband, internet seen as a top home buyer priority. A survey of real estate agents indicates a boom in questions about internet speeds before buying. Geek headline that is. People... <laughs> How old is the house and how fast is the internet? Um, BBC also is the next one. It's about Google. U.S. technology giant Google to invest $740 million in Australia for 6,000 jobs and a, and a lab. We covered that. Online shopping by Indian gated communities to hit $500 billion. As online shopping explodes in India, with an increase in smartphone and internet users, the total online consumption by the gated communities in India will increase 250% to reach a whopping $500 billion by 2026. In the next five years, India is expected to see 24 million gated community households in major cities, along with uh, the growth in speed per household is booming, 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 booming. India e-commerce is exploding. That's going to be so huge. Okay, next up is the Twitter API. As we covered that one, and uh, the oh, I failed to mention when we were talking about Spotify and their version of their copy of Clubhouse, where they're now going to allow people to listen, you know, listen to those rooms in web browsers without signing in. There's another element, another layer, another facet to that, which is uh, Spotify is introducing today self-serve podcast advertisements on Spotify. This is really quite interesting. And uh, they call it the Spotify Audience Network. So that as an advertiser, you, you know, you can start cherry picking which audience you want to target and which mood they're in. And if they're in a cafe or at the gym, and all, that's a really interesting ad network. And they're calling it the Audience Network, which I kind of like. And, um, but now the interesting piece to this is because now you know why they're going after podcasters. Because now the podcasters will be able to monetize their podcasts, which Apple really never let them do. And now you're going to see every podcaster very quickly move over to Spotify. Because now you can insert ads into your podcast and get paid to be a podcaster. You don't have to go sell your own advertising or get your own partnerships. You can just click a button and Spotify will insert ads into your podcast and you get paid and then the question is what i think you know where i'm going next if spotify has already been doing that in music between songs and now they enable podcasters to do it in their podcast that's what's coming today how long before they let their social audio room hosts do that as well because they have an ad network They've got all they've got advertisers wanting to advertise. 
Don't they also have like videos for podcasts? I think they were testing they, that some time ago. Yeah, they've been testing that for a very long time. And in some cases they do. In the case of Joe Rogan, they do. And that's that's a big question because if they really pursue that full force, they could become a potential competitor to YouTube. Yeah. Is, is there anything here? Like, should, should there be any consideration given by Spotify? Or do you think they're already making considerations on people playing music through these? Like, Do you think there are going to be some sort of restrictions or whatnot? Like if you are putting... Um, putting an embedded thing in where you're then playing music directly from it. Like, is that a problem? I suppose YouTube has been doing that for quite a while. Just specifically music, I'm thinking, Tyler. Give me the question again, please. <laughs> Sorry, is, is, is there any consideration, like, is there any difference if people start using these, this for music? If they, are, if, they are, if they have music playing in the background of these rooms that they're embedding, does that, do they need to take that into consideration or does it not matter? Like, because you are, you, you could essentially put together like a radio show, couldn't you, really, that people don't have to sign in for. And, you know, what are you generating from that? You're not really generating revenue from that because people aren't signing in to listen to it. They're not signing into the Spotify platform right. to actually. I, I'm, I'm guessing because I've not spoken with them about this, but I will, that, you know, being here you know, a, a block from their global headquarters as I am. Um, and I could have lunch with them any day I want. So the... I'll find out, but what, how I imagine it will work is that the um, the when people listen to Spotify traditionally with music, they do it singularly through one account, right? You have one listener. You, Carl, are listening to you know Taylor Swift as you or Ricky Martin as you probably do, and. Uh, but if you go into a social audio room and there's, you know, they know how many people are in that room and you have a hundred people in that room and they're all listening to Ricky Martin together. Well, that's a hundred streams and Ricky Martin should get, or whoever owns that content, it should be listed in their analytics that there was a hundred listeners. So it counts as like a hundred Spotify streams. But this, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. the room owner shouldn't really get anything i mean although that raises the question what happens when they play an ad in that room yeah exactly will it be like screen time but for a voice i don't know i'll, I'll make it a point to ask them next time i meet with uh yeah i think there's probably some interesting stuff here that we haven't thought of that the you know when you're next sure. chatting to them they'll probably bring up and you why okay. doesn't Spotify do an integration with Clubhouse? Would they? Would, do you think they would do an integration with Clubhouse like Otter is? No, because they they're going directly competitive, and they bought their own, you know, competing solution essentially. Yeah, they they're already starting this with their own user base. I don't know what advantage they would have um, trying to approach merge. Clubhouse if they did a merge. It would make sense. That at this point, that horse has already left the barn, I think. So, I'm sure they met with Clubhouse when they were. Oh, maybe not. I can't say that. I don't know that they did. I think they knew, um, just based on having a lot of friends there. And, you know, if you live in Stockholm, as some of the people on stage and in the audience do, you inevitably have friends who work there. 
because uh, Stockholm, like I said, is, is a relatively very small city of a million people, which in, in China, that's a bus stop. So um, it's almost a certitude because Spotify is one of the biggest companies here. You're going to know somebody that works there. And and I happen to do know a lot, quite a few people, a lot of people who work there, very high in the company. So it Swedes know and have always known that Spotify's ambitions are way beyond music. And they've made this known for a very long time they're, that they're, they don't think of themselves as a music company. They think of themselves as an, an audio company. And now you're seeing the headlines about, you know, these big partnerships and acquisitions of audiobook companies and podcasts and social audio. They want to do anything that has to do with going into your ears. They, that's been a stated. Well, that's, 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 that's the thing. What Clubhouse has is not technology. What Clubhouse has is a culture of people, right? Like all those, all those are like voice channels, but they're going to start to go through the process that Clubhouse did, which is, okay, you got people in here in voice and, you know, a year and a half or some change or two later. And what, what, what nobody has really, I think, is a condensation of uh, people that were going through the pandemic over two years. And they have like a lot of ideas and insight and kind of built this somewhat of a pretty nice future culture you could just install as an operating system into the, I, I guess, the hearts I, of these apps. I think what their Spotify's response would be that they have 350 million monthly users and they're excited for those folks to give them a platform to do live audio. Um, I, and they'll say that in a much nicer way than even I just did being Swedish as they are. So, uh, um, also, we don't actually know how this is going to work out long term. Like we're right. all in love with social audio because we're all here in this room now and we turn up every day. But this is still relatively new. And, you know, it yeah. came out during COVID well, pandemic and lockdown for a lot we, of countries. Carl, to so, that point, we, did, we didn't understand how Facebook was going to play out until this year. Until, yeah, you know, exactly. So when in the age of COVID and, you know, the capital building and, you know, all of this, you know, misinformation, craziness, um, it takes years to really understand the impact that the platform is going to have. And I'm optimistic that the audio, social audio is going to be uh, a very positive influence. But some, we may, when we're talking about the inevitable embedding of social audio rooms at the end of news articles, uh, Chris Vornoff was right. And so many of the people on stage, we joked, but we're, we're, it's, there's a lot of truth in the humor that there's going to be, that could get very toxic and very crazy. And we don't, that, that could spin out of control in really weird ways. Um, and all of us, all of us in here, like tech news around the world and all the other leader clubs uh, in here kind of know how to do it. Right. Like uh, my, what I heard my, was there's 350 million people in Spotify that if, the leaders in here could uh, kind of get together and go in there and kind of maybe do it, you know, because they would they would have oh. learned things and keep that kind of you know do the right and thing going. It, it sounds crazy, but it, I spent a bit of time, and I imagine other people on stage and in the audience did too. When Spotify opened up their social audio app, a green room, <clears throat> I spent a bit of time over there, and um, um. And Daniel from Spotify even asked, you know, suggested that I do the tech news over there. Um, I don't. I think we only tried it one time over there, and that was when they had these gems, at, where everyone's 
clicking on these gems and it was um that that feature they removed it thank god because oh my god did that turn that whole app into a crazy gem bizarre <laughs> thing where people people are just spending all their time gemming each other all the time it was, it was really, like a really like candy like like candy crush, crush. yeah but i mean how how hard is it if tyler says okay this is on twitter spaces or this is on spotify i mean how hard is it for all of us to jump over into a room in five minutes it's it's pretty easy there's you know not a lot of friction there and secondly clubhouse it's lovely but it's likely to be sold at some point who buys it do they keep it going or do they run it into the ground and then spotify's got your playlist right it's a really e easy like from a user perspective right like it is not if they had if they curated a nice experience over there it would be very easy to just flip back and forth between your music and your audio rooms right they they kind of already have that they have this program called music plus talk which they have i think in like 15 countries or something and um it it allows you to integrate your spotify i don't think they've done it for green room i think it's like for podcasters at the moment at least or i don't know maybe they will develop it for green room or they have and i just don't know about it um, but what it allows you to do is it allows you to play music from Spotify, like within your podcast or to showcase, for example, kind of like a radio show to showcase, um, different music and, you know, to play it in the background and things like that. So it's kind of out there already. It's just a step away from green room. Yeah. I think the, the issue that we are having right now and also just going back to the ads that um, Tyler mentioned and streaming at certain times is still the attribution. It's the same issue that TV has in advertising that you don't know how to like we're struggling to attribute very uh, accurately. Um, and um, in gaming, for instance, we are struggling with this as well because there's a lot of in-game ads now that, that we want to add. Um, and audio ads, and we don't have an attribution system for it. So I think that's also something that um, will be difficult for the whole audio space because advertising is key to make it th a thriving industry. And so we'll need to find a system to do this. You know, let me just give you guys from a user experience from like a UX builder. It's very simple. Just try this out. You go to Spotify, you click a button, right? That's the app, not the, you know, because I don't know about the green room and all this other stuff. It's just, Good old user, they already, 350 million active people are clicking and pushing a button every day. That's what they're doing, pushing button to start it. At that point, when I clicked it, they, all you got to do is have a piece of real estate on there, a little banner piece of that screen that states audio, you know, whatever, right? Like social audio. And you click that, and then you go into the social audio world of Spotify. Like they could just do that, and you've got 350 million people pushing that button and that's what they see. And then they, a big chunk of them are going to push that. And, and, and that's how they could really just, I mean, there's 2 million active users on clubhouse last article I read, but if they got 350 million users, that's uh, th that little function. Once that occurs is, is a, is a game changer, I think in social audio. So regarding what Maria said about attribution, I mean, like really you can 
tell you already have statistics about the users right so what you want to do is you want to attribute sales to whether you know somebody who um, listened to a specific ad that they actually then go and purchase something so all you need to add is a buy now button and spotify already has for example polls right so like you can poll your um listeners uh with questions i mean that's just a step away from you know telling them like by the way if you're enjoying this listening experience press the button you know which you can see right now in the bottom of this podcast and you can go to per to this purchase page where you can purchase this product it's just a step away yeah and then they will partner with shopify and our shopify stock will go up further <laughs> Yeah, they could even integrate product feeds. Exactly. So like, for example, you know, if somebody is going through their product catalog, right, and saying like, well, now in our December product catalog, we have these and these products, and then they talk about them, and you can actually have a product feed added on to the listening experience. So people can actually go and purchase the products, it should be like, you know, they already have almost everything in place to be able to do that if they partner with somebody like Google or um, or Shopify, they could totally do that. Yeah, basically dude, what dude, dude, they have, they have, have, they have APIs. Oh my God, they got APIs hooked up to everything, like through Shazam, whatever. They already got, got the API connects. Uh, so imagine whenever you're at the store and like Shazam could like, you could launch it and then they could just start talking into the Shazam thing and then it kind of talks into your audio group over in in your um uh Spotify room right like they they already have massive api that, yeah, network that works if you're logged in but not if you again you have to be logged in to use Spotify because of course with the iOS uh po privacy policy changes if you would say do not share my id then the attribution is difficult you know but you're logged in with an email so then the idea is that you can tie the purchases via email. Well, the more important thing is they have the relationships with the developers and they have the API structure so they can just go do an API update and then the developer on the other side can just pick it up and start using it in their app. Like that's the most important bond right there that they have and they have a lot of those bonds all over the world. Okay. <clears throat> more articles to get into here. So the fewer people are dying of cancer in the U.S., uh, cancer deaths in the U.S. have fallen by 27%. Oh, Tyler, over... you're muted. Oh, sorry. Thank you, Cheryl. You read my mind. <laughs> the cancer deaths in the U.S. have fallen 27% over the last 50 years. Fewer people are dying from cancer in the U.S. thanks to improved diagnosis and treatment and better understanding of prevention and analysis. That's good news. Apple adds more drivers to its autonomous car fleet. <clears throat> Number of cars remains at 69. Uh, after cutting its California self-driving test fleet, Apple has been consistently expanding the number of drivers as months go by. And speaking of autonomous cars, a company called REE unveils the Leopard a fully autonomous concept vehicle based on <clears throat> REE's modular EV platform. But if you look at this vehicle that I just tweeted, you will say to yourself, that's the same vehicle we've seen countless times that was first introduced on the streets of Stockholm about six years ago <laughs> and uh, has now been replicated everywhere. Um, we've seen a Finnish one in a partnership with Muji from Japan. We've seen the British one. 
with the big Union Jack on the side. We've seen all all kinds of variations of this, but they all end up looking rather the same. Looks like a bigger human-scaled version of the Neuro, uh, which is the autonomous um, kind of food delivery vehicle. And speaking of food, speaking of fast food, you might want to think twice before you order fast food. USA Today has a truly uh, concerning article that uh, in the headline says, let me tweet this out. In fact, let me pin this to the top of the room because this this is a problem. This is a real, this, this article alone was worth your price of admission today. So how many people are familiar with phthalates? If not, you should be, and you will be. Everyone will be in coming months. Um, phthalates are finding their ways into all kinds of products. I was we read articles um, recently that uh, sh the e-commerce companies Shine um, has a bunch of phthalates in their products that are even intended for kids. And now we're and that's this is very troubling because these are what are called forever chemicals. They don't they don't disappear. They're used for softening plastic. And now this USA Today article says chemicals linked to health problems found at McDonald's, Taco Bell, Chipotle, and others, especially in the meat. A new study shows that chemicals known as phthalates, which have been linked to health problems, have been detected in food from popular chains like McDonald's, Chipotle, and more. The peer-reviewed analysis was published this week in the Journal of Exposure Science and Environmental Epidemiology by researchers from George Washington University and Boston University and Harvard University. The research includes items from McDonald's, Burger King, Pizza Hut, Domino's, Taco Bell, Ch and Chipotle. Researchers obtained 64 food samples of hamburgers, fries, chicken nuggets, chicken burritos, cheese pizza, and they found that over 80% of the food contained phthalates called DNBP and 70% contain the phthalate DEHP. Both of the chemicals have been linked to, are you ready? Reproductive health problems. You know, like uh, lowering birth rates. Food containing meat, such as chicken burritos and cheeseburgers, had higher levels of the chemical studies, while cheese pizza had the lowest levels. Laria Edwards, an author of the analysis and a postdoctoral research scientist at George Washington's University's Milliken Institute of School of Public Health, told USA Today that it's concerning to find these chemicals detected in the foods that we ingest. Phthalates are added to plastics to make them softer, and they can transfer from plastics used for food handling, such as gloves, tubing, and more. They have been linked to reproductive problems, learning and attention problems in children, and more. I think be... about all. I think about all the plastic products. Um, those of us who have kids, uh, you know, drinking bottles, things like this. So, they didn't mention Subway, however. So go ahead, and we're going to take a little Subway sandwich break. Thank God they didn't mention Subway. We we we'll be fine. So we will leave it there because I have to go to a, a, an urgent meeting and let you 
next time. Thank you, everybody, for another Tech Thank News Roundup. Thank you. See you later. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you, everyone. Six Take hours. Care. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks, Tyler.